0: I have uh, another special announcement uh, that we will be having a baptism uh, next Sunday. Uh, and so I look uh, forward to that. Uh, Colby Jackson uh, is going to be uh, being baptized and identifying uh, his life uh, with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So uh, looking forward to that uh, next Sunday. Uh, but right now we are going to, uh, to jump back into uh, our study uh, and uh, when, uh, when reading literature, there are, there are times when uh, an author likes to surprise uh, us as readers, uh, when they like to uh, kind of bring something up that was unforeseen, uh, something, uh, maybe a sudden death of a character or a, uh, a turn of events that was completely unexpected. Uh, there are other times when uh, an author likes to give us hints and clues uh, along the way. Uh, so that something is not going to be a surprise. Uh, they uh, drop uh, or they foreshadow uh, what is to come uh, in the future. Uh, and uh, this literary device uh, is used to to build anticipation, uh, to help us to, to see and know what is coming, to be prepared for it. Uh, and over time, as things are foreshadowed uh, over the, the span of a book, uh, we we look forward to them uh, actually taking place. There's an anticipation that builds uh, over time as we we read through now in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, those three gospels, Jesus makes three pronouncements that he's going to the cross. for instance if you if you open with me to the Gospel of Mark, I know you probably turned to John, but t- turn over to the gospel of Mark chapter eight verse thirty one you can begin to see how this this happens in Mark's gospel. So, Mark chapter eight, verse thirty-one, says, "And he began to teach them, speaking of his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again." And if you look over to chapter nine, verses thirty and thirty-one. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is is foreshadowing what is to come. He's trying to prepare his disciples. Now, something a little bit different takes place in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't speak of himself as, going to be crucified. he speaks of himself as uh, going to be lifted up uh, and just like in Matthew Mark and Luke there are three occasions where Jesus speaks of being crucified, uh, going to the cross and then rising again. In John's gospel there are three occasions where Jesus speaks of himself as going to be lifted up. and if you turn over to the Gospel of John, the, the first of them is in John chapter 3. If you look at verse 14 it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. If you turn over to to chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on My own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught Me. And if you jump over to, to John chapter 12, you see that the third <coughs> passage in which Jesus speaks of Himself as going to be lifted up. Verse 32, He says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus speaks of himself as, as being lifted up. And there's a, a double meaning to those words or really just a singular word in the Greek. The general idea is, is to, to lift something up spatially or physically. Uh, as we what we see in uh, verse, uh, or chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, I said that Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and the Israelites were to, to look upon that serpent that was raised up. And if they looked upon that serpent, then they would be rescued from the snakes that were going about in the camp. When Jesus says that he is to be lifted up, he's speaking about his own physical death on the cross. When you die on the cross, you are lifted up. You're not standing on the ground. So in one sense, Jesus is saying he must be lifted up. He must be crucified. But there's a second idea communicated by this same word of lifting something up. You are also exalting it. Now, there's one Greek dictionary that defines this Greek word as to cause enhancement in honor, fame, position, power, fortune. So so when Jesus is saying that He must be lifted up, that He is going to be lifted up, He is pointing both to the reality that He is going to be crucified and humiliated, but also that He is going to be lifted up and exalted at that same time. His crucifixion leads to His glorification. He is glorified and worshipped because he was crucified. And he will forever be lifted up in heaven because he was lifted up on the earth. If you, if you keep your, your finger here in the Gospel of John and turn over to, to Revelation chapter 5, we will see this. In the, the throne room of heaven, notice what Jesus is praised for doing. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Jesus is is praised and worshipped in heaven because he was lifted up on the cross, because he was slain for us. As I mentioned in John's Gospel, there's three occasions when when he uses this term and and speaks of himself. The the first one, uh, or each one of those three, has a specific emphasis. Uh, The first one uh, is to show that this was a part of God's plan. John chapter 3, verse 14, the emphasis was in verses 14 and 15. It was that the Christ had to be lifted up. He must be lifted up. It was a decree of God. It must happen. And the third passage in John chapter 12 emphasized that Jesus was going to be lifted up. Uh, And that because He was lifted up on the cross, that was going to be the means, that was going to be the instrument that Jesus was going to draw all men to Himself. The cross is how we will be saved. But this second lifted up passage is what we're going to study this morning. Uh, And it's going to emphasize that the identity of Jesus is revealed in and through the cross. The identity of Jesus is going to be identified in and through the cross. And we are to know Jesus, if we are going to know him, we must know him uh, as the crucified and risen Savior. Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, has this quote in speaking about the importance of the cross. It says, you may know a good deal about Christ with a kind of head knowledge. You may know who he was, where he was born, and what he did. You may know his miracles, his sayings, his prophecies, and his ordinances. You may know how he lived, how he suffered, and how he died. But unless you know the power of Christ's cross by experience, unless you know and feel within the blood, that the blood shed on that cross was, has washed away your own particular sins, and unless you are willing to confess that your salvation depends entirely on the work that Christ did upon the cross, Christ will profit you nothing. The mere knowing of Christ's name will never save you. You must know His cross and His blood, or you will die in your sins. That's exactly what we looked at last week in John chapter 8. So we can turn there now, uh, as we we studied John chapter 8 verses 21 to 24 last week, and three times Jesus said to uh, the religious leaders and to the crowd that had gathered around him there in the temple, uh, says, you will die in your sins. That is our human condition. But there was one escape from that human condition, and that was looking upon him in faith. Uh, and so we're we're parachuting back down into uh, this final day of the Feast of Booze, where Jesus is there in the temple. He's having this debate with the religious leaders, and there's a, a crowd of people who have gathered around uh, and are listening into the debate. Now, we're going to look at verses 25 through 29 this morning, but I want to get a running start. So if you would begin reading with me in verse 21. So he said to them again, You will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have been saying or have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Let's pause and pray. Father, You are holy, righteous, and true. Father, You are united with Your Son and with the Holy Spirit. We thank You and praise You as the triune God. We thank You that... That You have sent Your Son into this world to save us, to rescue us. That You were motivated by love to send Your Son as a sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we worship You and praise You for this. Lord Jesus, we worship You and praise You as the one who was sent to die on our behalf. We worship You, Spirit, as the One who has applied our salvation to our hearts and lives. Grant us now understanding concerning this passage. Help us to study it deeply and to apply it richly to our lives. Help us to see Your glory. Help us to see the beauty and majesty and the clarity of the cross. And may we walk away this morning with a a deeper and a greater worship of you. We lift up this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we are going to to chip away more and more uh, at this debate that is taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees, what we're going to, to see among the religious leaders is that they are still confused about who Jesus is. Uh, even though they are they, they've witnessed his ministry for about two years now, there is still confusion. Uh, and in response to this confusion that they express, Jesus says, "Clarity is coming. you you will know who I am. Uh, and he promises clarity in the future once he is lifted up. And as we we study this portion, we're we're going to see the clarity that the cross brings. Uh, there's going to be a, a contrasting uh, of two different time periods and two views of Christ. There's going to be uh, confusion before the cross. And after the cross, there's going to be clarity about Jesus. Uh, and uh, this is going to, to help us see and understand what exactly the cross teaches us about Jesus uh, and what is the, the role of the cross in our own lives. Why does it matter that Christ was lifted up on a day-in, day-out basis? Why should that matter and impact our lives? That's what we're going to see this morning. But but first, we see the confusion about Jesus before the cross. This is in verses 25 to 27. And as we we read earlier and studied last week, uh, in verse 24, Jesus makes this very profound statement. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Or unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And now, that statement is so profound because it has implications concerning the human condition. It has implications concerning salvation, and it has implications concerning the identity of Jesus, of who He is. And concerning the human condition, it makes it clear that we will die in our sins, that every single one of us is on a trajectory, is on a path, Uh, leading away from God and toward our own destruction because of our sin. This statement was significant concerning salvation because it says that unless we look to Jesus, He is our only hope, uh, unless we look to Him, we will die. We will continue on that trajectory. And also this passage was significant concerning the identity of Jesus because in the ESV, Says you must believe that I am He. But as we saw last week in the Greek, it just says, You must believe that I am. And that that is the divine name of God from the Old Testament. It's the kind of the, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yahweh. Jesus says, I am. You must believe that Jesus is God. So that was a very significant and profound statement that Jesus makes. Uh, and, and the Jewish uh, religious leaders they respond by saying, "Who are you?" Uh, or really more along the lines of, "Who do you think you are?" Uh, they are. It's a question that, that is mixed with confusion and outrage, because they're saying, "If if you're really saying what you what we think that you're saying, this we got problems and situations." They are. They cannot believe their ears. So they ask, "Who are you?" And then the ESV translates Jesus's response as a statement that just what I have been telling you from the beginning. But but the NASB translates it more as a question of what have I been saying to you from the beginning? And I would agree more with the the NASB there that, that Jesus answers their question with a question. They say, who are you? And he says, what have I been telling you this whole time? This entire time as they've been having this debate, even going back to John chapter 5, Jesus has been telling them that he is the son of God sent by God into the world. And they are not understanding that. Or rather, they are not accepting that. And in verse 26, right after he asked that question of what have I been telling you from the beginning? Jesus says, there's a lot more that I have to say about you. And he says there's a lot more judgment that i need to pronounce upon you but he says really that that that's going to wait because he is the sent one because the father has sent him uh, and he's doing what the father has told him to do and he emphasizes that he who sent me is true and i declare to him to the world what i have heard from him so jesus kind of saying he didn't come to argue and debate with the Pharisees all day and all night. His message is not just for the Pharisees. His message is intended to go forth to the world. That's why Jesus came. And he speaks for God. And verse 27 is a kind of a parenthetical statement, a commentary by the Apostle John to help us understand what is taking place. And he says, they really didn't comprehend that when Jesus was speaking about the one who sent him, that he was speaking about God the Father. So John is giving us additional insight and and helping us to see that there is still a great level of confusion and unbelief here on the part of the religious leaders. You could say like the the, the people of Babel, who were confused by God, like the the men of Sodom who were blinded by God, there is much uh, confusion and blindness among the religious leaders here. Uh, There there is sin, there is unbelief, uh, and they are not clearly seeing who Jesus is, even though they have heard him teach and, and seen the miracles. And ultimately, no one will see Christ clearly without faith. No one will see who he is truly and genuinely uh, unless they look to him with eyes of faith. And that's kind of the, you ever look at somebody through a tinted window uh, or through a, a screen door? We can kind of make out their form, but not really their, their appearance uh, too much. That, that's kind of how uh, the, the unbelieving mind views Christ. Sin and unbelief, you can say they, they darken the mind, it blinds the eyes and it, it hardens the heart. Now, that's what sin does, and especially concerning the person and the work of Jesus. There was a, a very sad uh, letter to the editor uh, written by a man in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and he wrote this letter uh, after the evangelist Billy Graham had, had come through uh, and and had a big uh, crusade where the gospel was proclaimed. <clears throat> so this man wrote a, a letter to the editor in a local newspaper. And, and this is what the, the letter to the editor said. After hearing Billy Graham and and viewing him on television and seeing reports and letters concerning his mission, his mission here, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitious preaching insists that I do says give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance that acquires no barriers uh, of color or creed or that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed that remembers the aged and teaches children goodness and not sin if in order to save my soul i must accept such a philosophy as i have recently heard preached i prefer to remain forever damned and he signed his name and that's the that's the confusion about Christ that accompanies unbelief Uh, and so we we shouldn't be surprised when we see and hear confusion of this type it shouldn't shock us uh, it should grieve us uh, and it should be heavy upon our hearts but we shouldn't be surprised by this why should we not be surprised well listen to these words in in 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 Who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What that passage in essence says is that... uh, The God of this world, Satan, has placed a veil over the minds of those who do not believe. They do not see Christ clearly. They do not understand who He is, and so they reject Him. And so so what's the solution? How are we to respond to this confusion that we see in the world? Well, just like Paul says there, we proclaim Christ. Uh, We uh, shine the light of Christ forth into the world. Because that's the only way that that veil is going to be removed. Uh, and we pray that the Lord would remove that veil. Because you and I can't, can't remove it. It's not within our power to do that. There is confusion and the only one who resolves that confusion is the Spirit of God working upon the human heart. But we have to be faithful to proclaim the Gospel. There is much confusion about Christ. But what we're going to see is that the, that confusion is only temporary and that, that is not a permanent confusion about who Jesus is there's going to, to come a time when the truth about Christ is made known to every single person to every single person who has lived in the past to every single person who's living in the present and to every single person who lives in the future prior to his return Christ is going to be made known clarity about jesus will come and jesus is going to to promise this in verses 28 and 29 he speaks to them so they have i've always been proclaiming exactly who i am they say who are you exactly who he's been saying he is but then jesus says this in verses 28 and 29 this is the the clarity about jesus after the cross Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on My own authority, but speak just as the Father taught Me. And He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that first little word there in the ESV, so, so Jesus said to them. So Jesus is going to, to say what he says in verses 28 and 29 because he sees their confusion about him. And say, who, who are you? And so I'm exactly who I've been proclaiming to you, but let me clarify this even more. Therefore, Jesus said to them, and He's going to to promise clarity, and and we can look closely at the clarity that He promises, and you can say, when will this clarity come? Answer, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Jesus lays out a a causal or a, a temporal relationship between His being lifted up Uh, and their knowledge of who He is. They will either come to know who He is in in one of two ways. Once He's crucified, they will either believe in Him, they, they will see His death, and they will believe it. And that happens with Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the council. That happens with Nicodemus, who is a member of the council. That's going to happen with the Apostle Paul, who's lurking somewhere in the background here as a Pharisee during this time. There are going to be some who see the crucifixion of Christ and come to faith. But there's also another way that people will come to know who Jesus is. If you, if you turn over with me to Philippians chapter 2, there will be many who, who do not believe in Christ in this earthly life. But that doesn't mean that they will not come to know who He is. Philippians chapter 2, after speaking about Christ humbling Himself as being equal with God and and humbling Himself to become a man. Paul says this in verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even... Because of Christ's death on the cross, He will be worshipped. There's an exact number of knees mentioned in that passage. What was, did you catch it? What was the exact number? Every. Every knee will bow. There will not be anyone who will not recognize who Jesus is in the future. Every single person is going to see and realize Jesus is who he has claimed to be. He is exactly who he has said he is and whether or not these religious leaders look to him in faith they will one day know with certainty who he is and that's true for every single person. but so that is that's the, the win concerning the, the clarity of about Jesus. But then we could also ask, what is it exactly that is going to be clarified about Jesus when he is lifted up? Well, if you're back with me in in John chapter eight, verse twenty eight, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Uh, and once again, in the Greek it just says, then you will know that I am. There, There is a reality that when Jesus dies on the cross, He is made known as God. And that, that is one of the things that is revealed when Jesus is crucified, that He is God. At the end of Mark's Gospel, uh, it Demonstrates that the way that Jesus died proclaimed His deity. Because one of the, the Roman centurions who was there, an eyewitness to the crucifixion, he sees the way that Jesus died and he comes to this conclusion. Listen to Mark 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way He breathed His last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And seeing and beholding Jesus die. The Roman centurion came to that conclusion. This man was God. But additionally, when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, he proclaimed that he was God, and it was made evident also because he, on the cross he was victorious over every demonic and spiritual power raised up against God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say this. The idea is that on the cross, that that was Christ's victory. It was His humiliation, but it was also His victory where He triumphed over every spiritual power. And on the cross as well, Christ was victorious over death. And ultimately, this kind of ties in with His resurrection because He died on the cross, but He didn't stay dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57 Speaking about the way that Christ conquered death, he says, the, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's victory over death establishes his deity because only God has the power over life and death. But what is revealed about Christ, first and foremost, is that he is God. That is the the pronouncement that is made on the cross. But then if, if you look at the the remainder of verse 28 and then verse 29, what we also see and what is emphasized here by Jesus is that not only is the cross going to reveal that He is God, but it's also going to reveal that He does the will of God the Father. It says, Then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing, on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. What is it that Jesus does? He does what he was taught to do. Uh, in his uh, fellowship with God the Father from eternity past, uh, he is uh, showing us what God is like. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that Jesus did not come to the earth as a representative of God. All right? That, that's Old Testament prophets. They, they came as representatives of God, bringing a message from God. Jesus came to the earth presenting who God is. He's not just bearing a message from God. He's saying, this is God. Again, John chapter 1, uh, verse 18, that, that Jesus is the one who makes God known to us. And He's demonstrating all that He was taught by God. And God the Father is with Him. He is not alone. Verse 29, And He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. There, there's, a, there's a lot uh, here, even just, just in that verse. And Jesus is just kind of mentioning it as a, a supporting statement of He's doing the will of God, and he's, he's always doing what is pleasing to God. Jesus is completely sinless. Uh, he's always uh, obeying God what God the Father has for him and completely submitting his life to the Father. And if you think about this, given the the context of all that is being said, Jesus is, is willing to submit to God the Father in every single way and is constantly doing what is pleasing to God, even humbling himself and going and dying on the cross. Humbling himself even to the point of death and then the worst kind of death as what we see here and this is this brings clarity to us because the cross of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners is the very heart of the gospel and that that is the message that we are called to respond to Christ the son of god came to the earth lived a perfect life died on the cross for you that brings clarity that is the message that we must respond to if we are to be saved and that is the message of the cross that we must proclaim and that that was the very heart and and central message of the apostle paul's ministry first corinthians chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 says for christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not pro- come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message of the Gospel. A crucified, lifted up, exalted Christ. There's a record of a, a Native American Indian uh, who had become a believer uh, and, and he was uh, addressing uh, a, a group of Christians and he said this. says, Brethren, I have been a heathen, and I know how heathens think. He says, Once a preacher came and began to explain to us that there was a God, but we told him to return to the place from where he came. Another preacher came and told us not to lie, nor steal, nor drink, but we did not heed him. And at last another came into my hut one day and said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven and earth to let you know that He will make you happy and deliver you from misery. From this end, He became a man, gave His life a ransom, and shed His blood for sinners. He said, I could not forget His words. I told them to the other Indians, and an awakening began among us. I say, therefore, preach the sufferings and death of Christ our Savior if you wish your words to gain entrance among the heathen. Now compare that with the letter to the editor that I read earlier. All right, that letter to the editor says, just give me a practical religion. Just just tell me what to do and not do. Leave Jesus out of it. I don't need that. I don't need to be saved or rescued. Just give me something practical. Something moral to teach my children. But this man says, don't give me practical religion. When missionaries came to them and gave them practical religion, don't steal, don't lie, they said, get out of here. But when the message of the gospel was proclaimed, when someone came and said, Christ loves you and died for you, that captured his heart. And he couldn't help but tell that to others. And there was a great awakening. We have to see and understand the message of the Gospel here. The beauty and glory that Christ was exalted. He was lifted up. But He was also humiliated on our behalf. We have to, to see and understand this. This is the, the heart of the Gospel. This is the message that will save and transform humanity. This is what the message that will save and transform individuals. This is the message that we're called to, to bring to our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, anyone that we come into contact with. Not just stop sinning and do this, but look to Christ. He has died for you. This is where this is also really important for us on a practical level. If we have believed in Christ, if we have seen and beheld the Christ crucified, lifted up and exalted... If we have believed in Him, His humiliation on the cross, followed by His exaltation, that is the normal pattern of the Christian life. That is what we are called to follow after. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and... Follow me. Where do Jesus' earthly footsteps lead? To the cross. To death. A little bit later in John's gospel, on the, the night that he is going to be arrested, Jesus is going to spend a whole lot of time with his disciples, telling them what's going to take place once he departs from them. John chapter 14, verses 18 through 21 say this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. That's not the passage that I was looking for. John chapter 15, verse 18. they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me. And this is what Jesus lays out for us of what is it that we can expect as we live this life in this world. That pattern of humiliation followed by exaltation in the future. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, that's the Apostle Paul's own confession of faith. He doesn't say, I'm trying harder. That This morality stuff is really making an impact upon my heart. No, what was it that transformed the Apostle Paul? the message of a crucified Savior and the call that we are now to live for that crucified Savior. The cross is the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, and it must be the center of our own lives. Uh, And it has to be the the center point of our lives because it was the turning point of our lives. Right? For for, for most of us, uh, there's a, a clear... Point in time where we understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. Uh, And that is the the hinge point on which our entire life turns. Before we came to know Christ, life was one way, and after we came to know Christ, life was another way. Uh, uh, So the cross must be the center. Christ on the cross is the center of our lives because of what he accomplished there. His humiliation leads to our salvation. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, say this Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's the the beauty and the glory of the cross. What Jesus accomplished for us should transform our lives completely. And we are to, to look to him and to see him most clearly and most powerfully on the cross it is a revelation of His character, His identity. Even as we sang this morning, that is the power of the cross. Amen? The cross brings clarity about Jesus. That He was and is the Son of God slain for us. The cross is a revelation of God. Because on the cross and through the cross, Jesus makes known to us who He is in the most powerful way. There's a a book by Tony Ranke. Uh It's called Competing Spectacles. If, if you're looking for a book to, to read and kind of meditate upon uh, leading up to, to Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday, I, w- I would encourage you to, to purchase it and read it. Uh, and it's just phenomenal. But, but he says this, uh, speaking of the cross, he says, Depending on how you see it, the cross is one of two spectacles the mocking of a faux king or the coronation of the true king of the universe. The cross was either a tragic misunderstanding and a ruthless murder of an innocent man or it was a pre-planned spectacle orchestrated by God to display to the world a beauty unsurpassed. As we As we close this morning with with one more song, and then as we prepare to to go uh, and and finish out the rest of our Sunday, I pray that our hearts and minds would be captivated by the cross of Jesus. That we would see all that He accomplished for us on the cross. That we would see the example that we have to follow in Him. That we are called to suffer. Uh, That's what we can expect in this life from a hostile world. Our humiliation is going to come. This is our, our humbling here in this life, and we will be exalted in the next, even as Christ was. pray that we would be captivated by the cross of Jesus. And may we see with clarity all that the cross is to us and for us. And may we worship Jesus for all he is and all that he has done on our behalf. Amen? Let's pray.